I have a friend, a female pastor, who was ordained back in the day when ordaining women was a very new thing. My friend tells the story of coming before the examination committee to be approved for ordination. She knew for a fact that most of these people were still not convinced that women belonged in the pulpit, and she was expecting a lengthy and possibly hostile interrogation. To maintain the calm and focus she needed to get through the meeting, she came up with a plan, which she immediately put into effect as her conversation with the committee began. She and the rest of the group sat down together in a circle. As the committee members began to question her motives, her preparation, and her competency, she imagined that the words coming out of their mouths were arrows. She visualized them flying toward her, but not reaching her. Instead, the arrows landed on the carpet in front of her feet. As she answered questions calmly, looking each person in the eye, she casually and unobtrusively moved one foot and then the other in front of her, crushing the arrows on the carpet. <laughs> no one noticed what she was doing, and it worked for her. Jesus is not so subtle. In this passage from Matthew, he's facing a group of Pharisees, experts in the law. We see Jesus catching their verbal arrows by the sharp ends and hurling them back at them straight into their hearts. Matthew ends this story by saying no one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask any more questions. Why are they so afraid to challenge him further? Perhaps because Jesus has just managed to uncover publicly their ineptness and lack of familiarity with their own religious tradition. They are completely stymied by Jesus' riddle. How can the Son be his Father's Master and Lord? The writer of Matthew seems to indicate that if they knew how to interpret their own scriptures adequately, the answer would be clear to them. The Christians of Matthew's day would have known the answer. The answer to that riddle is standing right in front of them. Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of God. Regarding Jesus' answer to their question about the greatest commandment, love of God and love of neighbor are both in the Jewish law, the Torah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might is part of the Shema, the great commandment found in Deuteronomy, which begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Shema is written on a small scroll placed in a small box called a mezuzah and posted on the doorposts 
of observant Jews for them to touch as they go in and out of their house. Did you know that we have one posted by the front door here at Richmond Hill? You might go looking for it after worship. The second part of Jesus' answer, love your neighbor as yourself, is found in the Torah in Leviticus. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Interestingly enough, it is only in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the words of Jesus, that these two commandments to love God and love neighbor are joined together. Why, you might ask, when asked for one commandment, does Jesus reply when with two? Well, by using the word like, Jesus indicates that the two commandments are bound together. The great commandment to love God has as its inseparable counterpart, love your neighbor. The two commandments are melded into one. You don't first love God, then love your neighbor. To love God is to love one's neighbor and vice versa. To love your neighbor as God loves them is to love God. They are two sides of the same coin. Many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day had split asunder the two parts of this commandment with their worship of burdensome rules and regulations, their pride and arrogance, hypocrisy, greed, fear of change, and their neglect of basic justice and mercy. They claim to love God, but by their failure to love their neighbor, it is clear that their love was for themselves and their own well-being. But let us not be too hard on this group of Pharisees. Christians themselves have often made the same mistake. It seems to be a human inclination and temptation to separate love of God from love of neighbor. Not too many years after the beginnings of the church, the Emperor Constantine announced that Christianity was now the state religion of Rome. And love of neighbor was dropped in favor of allegiance to military might and conquest of foreign peoples in the name of Christ. The other day, those of us taking the slave trail walk in downtown Richmond during the Koinonia seminar heard this theme repeated as we were reminded that in 1493, Pope Nicholas V continued this unholy undermining of Jesus' commandment to love God and love neighbor by issuing an authorization to the King of Portugal. The King and other European Christian nations were to, quote, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed 
and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. There are people alive today who remember the heresy of the state-owned German church during World War II, which became a mouthpiece for the Nazi party and its leader, Adolf Hitler. Those courageous Christians who broke ranks and refused to oblige risked imprisonment and their lives. However, thanks be to God, there is hope and help and holy ground still all around us. For God, who loves each of us so much, God, who sent Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine, to express that love, this God continues to restore the image of God in us, calling us back to love of neighbor when we have lost our way. I'd like to share a story with you about a time when the face of God and the face of neighbor came together powerfully. The story is about Edwina Gately. She's the founder of the volunteer missionary movement of the Catholic Church and of Genesis House in Chicago, a house of hospitality and nurturing for women involved in prostitution. In her book, Christ in the Margins, she tells of walking down a street in Chicago one night and coming to a rundown tavern on a corner of a dark alley. Suddenly she was overcome with the feeling that God wanted her to go into the tavern. That was where she was supposed to be. Inside, it was dark but she could feel the bodies jostling around the bar counter. She sat down at the bar feeling very much alone and out of place. As she sat at the bar in the dim light, a woman in her mid-fifties shuffled in and struggled to sit down on the bar stool next to her. Banging her fist on the counter, the woman demanded her jug of wine from the bartender. Looking over at Edwina, she said, you hungry? Edwina, wanting to be friendly, replied, well, a little. The woman then bent down and pulled a loaf of white sliced bread from her plastic bag on the ground. Good, she said. I haven't eaten for three days, and I just stole this loaf of bread from the supermarket down the street, been looking for someone to share it with. She then bent down and pulled out an open can of tuna, covered in plastic wrap, and using her hand, scooped out the tuna and spread it on the bread. She offered this soggy sandwich to Edwina with a big smile. Here you are, honey. Then she proceeded to fill up Edwina's empty glass from her jug. Edwina was stirred with compassion as she shared this odd meal. The woman rambled on about her hard life and how it was a struggle to survive. 
She did not know what she was going to do, how she was going to make it. Tears rolled down her face. Then, suddenly, a look of inspiration. Looking Edwena up and down, she cried out, Oh, honey, why don't we work together? I know where the tricks are. With my experience and your good looks, we could be a team. With horror, Edwena realized that the woman was an older prostitute, that times were hard for her now, and that she was asking her to team up with her. Edwina mumbled almost apologetically that she was not involved with prostitution, that she was a Christian, an independent Catholic minister. A what? The woman cried out in disbelief. Ain't never been no minister in here before. This ain't no place for a minister. Ain't no place for no Christian. You shouldn't be in here. Ain't no place for people like you. Edwina's presence triggered an emotional response in the woman who spent the rest of the night spilling out her story of incest, violence, and abuse. Edwina could do nothing but hold that broken woman and listen. Two women weeping together. The rest of this I tell in Edwina's own words. I left the bar feeling all emptied out and helpless. The woman with whom I had spent the last three hours lay huddled in a corner fast asleep, her face still damp with tears. Walking home in the greasy darkness of wet streets, I reflected on what had happened. As I did so, it was as if a blindfold suddenly slipped from my eyes and I pierced the veil from ordinary consciousness to a deeper place. I had gone into the bar, vulnerable, open, and looking for God. And this woman had come into the dark place in which I found myself. She brought the bread and she broke it and shared it with me. She brought the fish, and she shared it with me. Then she took the wine, and she shared that with me too. And then she told me her story, and she embraced me. Then I knew. I knew with a deep and transforming insight that there had been in that dirty place that night, a Eucharist, a communion, and that the Holy Spirit, ever elusive, ever roaming free, had been present in the coming together of open hearts, seeking compassion and grasping connections right in the heart of brokenness. God did not need a church or recognized holy place to be present. Rather, the ordinary place, two women, stolen bread, cheap wine, and fish became the place of mystical encounter. 
And the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. A second is inseparable from it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire divine revelation of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we prepare to pray for Metropolitan Richmond and for others who are in need of prayer, open the eyes of our hearts to see all people, those who are our friends, those to whom we are strangers, and even those who may be our enemies, as your beloved children and our neighbors. Then, as we share in the joyful feast of the people of God, may we see your divine neighborly image in each other. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>